ask you to turn to Luke chapter 18. I titled this one, Long-Term Dividend Investing. I expect uh, most everyone here understands that long-term suggests an investment where you're, where you're looking toward a future return, the promise of a future return, and a dividend strategy promises to, to pay you along the way. You get something out of it as you go. Uh, many Christians are, are very much looking forward to our reward in heaven. But today we'll learn that sacrificing for the kingdom supplies us benefits here and today. So in Luke chapter 18, we'll be beginning in verse 28. When answering a question, Jesus promises Immediate dividends, immediate dividends for sacrificial service for his kingdom. You know, I emphasized several weeks ago that the kingdom of God, it is a, it is a favorite topic of Christ. Of course, it's easy to understand because it is his kingdom. So Jesus wants his disciples to also remain focused upon that which he loves, his kingdom, and building it as well. And once again, the answer to the question, if you haven't been with us, what is a kingdom? That, that question needs to be answered. What, what is a kingdom? And that should be clarified. A kingdom is that realm or, or sphere of influence that is subject to a king. It's, it's a realm. It is a sphere of influence that is subject to a king. And Jesus declared in Luke 17, 21, that the kingdom of God is already in our midst. That's present tense. Uh, that is, as Christ reigns, as he exercises dominion over our hearts, over our minds, through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That is a current manifestation of the kingdom. Uh, primarily, but not exclusively, as we'll find out, it's a spiritual reign over us. Yet the balance of chapter 17, as we, as we went through that chapter... We're also ensured that the kingdom is, is set to arrive in the future as a physical kingdom at the return of Christ. And for that reason, Jesus repeatedly warns us again and again to be ready, to be ready for his return. Uh, that passage reflects what is often referred to by theologians as the already not yet phenomenon. Already and not yet. Christ is already reigning. He is seated at the right hand of God, but not yet in the fullness that will be experienced on the day that he returns. Uh, scripture often refers to two ages, the age that is and the age that is to come. Uh, this age, the age that is, is the time in which we now live. It's, it's often called also the church age. It's an age of, an ex of expansion of the kingdom. Like a mustard seed is very, very small when it starts. Uh, but as it grows and as it continues to slowly grow, it becomes the largest plant in the garden. Uh, the study of this, the, the church and church, all aspects of the church during this church age governance uh, through, um, through ministering to one another, that, that's called ecclesiology, just the study of the church. The age to come includes everything that, in, that transpires after Christ's return, 
to sit upon his, his glorious throne and inaugurate his eternal kingdom. Uh, the study of those things which are yet to come, at the end of the church age especially, including the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's referred to as eschatology. That's actually the, the class that Pastor Weiler is up in Atlanta taking uh, right now, is eschatology, study of the end times. My favorite topic to study, by, by far my favorite topic now, is ecclesiology. That is the study of Christ's church. One reason is because Christians, Christians have already entered this manifestation of God's kingdom. We're already in it. Colossians 1.13 tells us that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We're already in it. Those who have repented of sin have trusted that Christ died for our sins on the cross, that, that he rose again, repented of sin, uh, are by the Holy Spirit placed in the church. Scripture uses the, the term baptized into the church. Not, not speaking of water there, but a Holy Spirit baptism. We are placed into Christ's church, his, his spiritual body, and we are already citizens of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is also referred to in Scripture as the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24, Jesus uses these, these two phrases interchangeably. That's Matthew 19, 23 to 24, if you'd like to look at that. Jesus uses the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God interchangeably. During my seminary studies, we had, we had a class just on the Gospels. And, and one research paper required that we uh, explain the differences, the nuances between the kingdom of heaven, that's, that's a phrase that is a favorite of Matthew, and the kingdom of God, typically used by Mark, Luke, John, and, and often in the apostolic letters, or what we call the epistles. What is the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? It had to be a certain number of pages. I could have, this is a good illustration right here, I could have just handed in a blank paper. The short answer is, there is no theological difference. Jesus and Scripture use all of the following to refer to the same thing. The kingdom, just the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of His beloved Son and eternal life all describe the same eternal domain of God. Be, be a little bit cautious of amplified nuances in those terms. When you're going through a scripture and it talks about the kingdom of God and, and someone who's, who's with you grabs you and say, well, well, what you really need to understand is this is the kingdom of God and that really doesn't apply here uh, to the kingdom of heaven. And such, and, and you're, like, you're looking at it and you're like, what? I just don't understand. That's a good sign. There really are not differences. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. Jews were very familiar with the kingdom of heaven phrase. And to most of the Gentiles, the kingdom of God was used. It's the same thing. It's incredibly important um, to be aware of the kingdom. The kingdom of God and its benefits. And at Christ's return, when he comes... We will experience the manifestation of God's kingdom in its fullness. In its fullness. Currently, we now experience the kingdom of God, that is, the reign of Christ, in and among 
His church. Remember, the church isn't a building. The church is the people of God. We are His body. Keep this in mind as I read to you beginning in Luke 18, verses, uh, starting in verse 28. Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. See the difference there? At this time, age to come. You should, should immediately notice that this isn't just a promise to the disciples. It's not, not only for them. Yes, the account read uh, earlier, or the, or the account in Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have uh, this same record in it with different nuances to it because the, the Gospels don't exactly mirror one another. We've talked about that before, is they complement one another. They're all inerrant. Some just contain certain uh, parts of what Jesus said that, uh, that other Gospels don't. They complement one another. And in Matthew... It ensures that, yes, only the disciples will sit on 12 thrones at the regeneration. Um, Again, the regeneration is that point when Christ comes to consummate his kingdom. But then Jesus said, and everyone, really broadens it here, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. The record contained in, in Mark that was read earlier, chapter 10, supplies us with even greater detail. There Jesus declared, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers, plural, and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. See? Contained in multiple Gospels. The same principle. The age now and the age to come. Uh, I'd like you to notice that in all three Gospels, these promised benefits of Jesus are, are joined to eschatology, to, to the study of his church, this age in which we, we live in now. Uh, yet both are to be anticipated and experienced now, not later. They're to be experienced in the life of his church, in the body. Uh, there are current dividends. Follow me? Things that pay out now. Don't forget the context also of Peter's statement. A a rich young ruler had just come up wanting eternal life. He he wanted entrance into the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, eternal life. But he was unwilling to leave anything behind. He didn't want to leave wealth behind. Then Jesus stated after that it was impossible to enter heaven even, even for a rich man. And that remark left spectators just completely baffled. Remember the passage said they're just astonished 
They're like out of their minds. They were, they were so surprised that it was so hard to enter the kingdom. So, so they, they asked then, well, if a rich man can't even get his way in, who then can be saved? That's where we were last week. And we found out it's, for God it's pretty simple. He does the impossible. God does what is impossible. And we discovered that surely, well, there will be rich people in heaven. Talked about Abraham and, and Isaac and us and, you know, people living in the Western world who have so much more than everybody else. So the interpretation to that can't be that wealth just so spiritually de- uh, uh, blinds, so, so, so spiritually decapacitates that, that no rich, rich person can ever possibly be saved. That can't be the interpretation. Because some rich people surely do get in. The interpretation is, is that God saves. Nobody can do it among their, own, among their own resources. God may have, as Scripture shows us, a special affinity for the poor. As James said, has not God um, chosen, again we see that word chosen, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? In fact, he has. God, God loves the poor. And we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that, that not many among our ranks, not many, are noble, men of high stature. But Scripture doesn't say not any. Not many in our ranks are noble. But unlike uh, virtually everything else in the world for rich folks, Jesus assures eternal life it cannot be bought, uh, meaning the, the wealthy do not enjoy a strategic advantage of getting into heaven. Spiritually, we're all on the same level playing field. None is righteous, not even one. None understands, none seeks for God. Um, but we don't have to, this is important, we don't have to leave the rich out of, out of the equation. It's not like we withhold the gospel from rich people. And that, well, God has said, you know, it's impossible for them. That's what some people take from this passage, is that the rich just won't get into heaven, so we don't even need to worry about witnessing to them. That's not accurate either. In fact, 1 Timothy, no matter how privileged someone is, we don't withhold the gospel. 1 Timothy tells us that we are to pray for even for kings and all who are in authority. We're to pray for everybody. We're to witness to everybody. And uh, no matter how privileged they are, and that statement there, God isn't surrendering His sovereignty, that statement is made that God desires all men to be saved in the context of kings and all who are in authority so that we don't cut groups off. We, we don't decide. God, God, yes, we studied last week. God chooses. We don't. And we don't see hearts. So we witness to everybody. I had experience just yesterday filling up with gas. And I'm sitting there at the pump, and, and I got my gospel tract in here, and I challenged all the men. How many you got rid of, man? You get rid of your gospel tracts? Each man went from the men's study with ten gospel tracts, and they needed to give them out. So I'm sitting there, and this, these are the fleeting things that can come into our minds. I'm sitting there uh, in, at a pump. Across the side on the other pump is a gentleman Appeared to be from a different background, a different country, um, different accent and other things. It would be very easy for me to see, you know, well, he's not American, he probably doesn't want to hear about it. We can't make that judgment. We, we don't get to decide any of that stuff. No matter who they are or where they are, everybody gets the gospel. So I gave him a track. 
he politely accepted, said thank you. So, I mean, we just need to do what God has left us here to do. Um, Peter, after hearing all these statements, how, how hard it is, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom, he now wants some clarification. Jesus had just declared how hard it is to enter the kingdom. And Matthew tells us now this, this statement by Peter comes in the form of a question. Peter says, behold, and, and behold means I want your attention, take a good look, basically. Behold, take a good look, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? That's the part of the question you don't get in Luke. What then will there be for us? We've left everything. And in Scripture, we're often left to ponder things like, well, I wonder what voice inflection Peter was using when he asked this. Did Peter, you know, in reaction to what he saw with the, the rich young ruler, the, actually the inaction by the rich young ruler, did he ask Jesus with a tone of, you know, kind of prideful anticipation? You know, behold, we've left everything for you. What then will there be for us? Let us in on that, Jesus. We've done what you've said. Or, think of it this way. Did Peter, in response to hearing Jesus declare the difficulty of entering the kingdom, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom, amplified then by the hopelessness of a camel going through the eye of a needle, did he join the astonishment of the crowd when they asked, who then possibly can be saved? Is it, a, is it doubt that's in Peter's mind? Did, did Peter respond with a tone of desperation? But, but look, we, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Follow the difference? We don't know for certain. Um, personally, I think Peter's question mirrors that of the crowd. Who then can be saved? If a rich man can't buy his way in, who then possibly can get in? But we've left everything. I think Peter is fearful that they've left everything for nothing. I, I could be wrong, but, but regardless how you view Peter's words here, the reply, reply by Jesus receives the same explanation, the same treatment, the same application uh, either way. I think Peter's words reflect those of, of many a missionary. Many missionaries who, who've left a corporate job, who, who've left the, the comforts of the life that they had built in, in order to, to struggle through, through a mission overseas. I, I think Peter's words reflect the concern of, of any intelligent young man who, who's training to be a pastor. You know, when he is also more than gifted enough to, to build a successful business or build something else with his life. And I think Peter's word reflects those of every young family who struggles to balance their generosity with the realism of daily needs. Giving up more when they see their family going with less and they're wondering, you know, what will there be for us? What will there be? Yeah. Behold, we, we've sacrificed our lives. 
We've left our careers. Um, We've permitted ourselves to be passed over for promotions and and career advancements. We've sold our homes and, and moved to a place where we don't know anybody we might not even know the language, and, and they don't know us. We, we've put all of our personal advancement on hold. What will there be for us? Now, I personally know of, of one young mother and father named uh, Brent and Jacqueline. They had multiple children who owned a, a successful pharmacy up in North Dakota. They had a 5,000-plus square foot home, cars, toys of, of every sort. I met them at Dallas Seminary. Actually, opening day, opening orientation started on the same day. And they, after placing their trust in Christ, they cashed everything out, sold the business, sold the house, sold the toys, and moved into a tiny little apartment on Dallas Seminary's campus. Tiny little apartment. In order to to pursue a degree for ministry. I know of another man who who became really my best friend in seminary. Uh, He was in his early 40s. His name was Barry. He was from Arkansas. He and his family, wife and three children, left his career in Arkansas. He was midlife. They, they sold everything. They cashed out their entire 401k. Did the same sort of thing as Brent and Jacqueline. He got his master's in cross-cultural missions and, and ex- after exhausting all of their resources in his final semester. He's leading up to graduation and he's exhausted everything that they had in midlife. He and his family then graduated, uh, after graduation, boarded a plane and went over to who knows where in China. Gave it all up and went. People leaving everything that they know for the sake of his name and for the gospel's sake. You know, from the people that I have met, especially in ministry and, uh, ministry and missions, these stories, they're, they're more common than uncommon, to be honest with you. Another delightful woman that Rita and I knew in seminary, her name was Vicki. She was an accomplished corporate accountant in, in Philadelphia. And if I remember right, she was studying missions as well. And having run out of money before the beginning of her last semester of school, having exhausted all of her resources... She, she was preparing to, to go to student services and counseling to withdraw from seminary until her classmates pooled the money to pay for her last semester of school. She, she then crossed with the rest of us, with everybody else, crossed the stage on graduation day. I don't know where she is today. I know she gave everything. She left a career. I think she was 50 years old. Left everything to follow Christ. I'm so dry today. Sorry about that. People who left everything to follow Christ. Folks, I don't believe God is offended by somebody in the crowd. Somebody who's sacrificed and walk away from their, their fishing business in, Lake Gal- in the Lake of Galilee, Galilee or wherever it would be. I don't think God's offended by someone just asking, what then will there be for us? 
Those types of things cross your mind uh, because Jesus is really now just probably a couple weeks from entering Jerusalem on, on the back of a donkey colt. Very, very short time frame now before he goes to the cross. And in, in as little as two months from this date, Jesus will then command his disciples to go into all the world. Very short time now. Go into all the world. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Go. There, there are going to be scores of people forsaking everything. There are going to be scores of other people forsaking their livelihood and the livelihood of their families um, just to help those people go overseas by supporting them. There's going to be scores of people like Brent and Barry and, and Vicky and others who are going to wonder, what then is for us? Jesus resp- replies to his, uh, his disciples with this assurance, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Translation? Here's a translation. You are never going to lose serving Christ. You are only subject to gain. You will not lose. And the increase that Jesus promises is not only exclusively to be anticipated at his second coming and beyond. It's not only in that end times eschatological calendar after he returns, but in his kingdom today. The benefits will come under the reign of Christ and in his church. The promise there he gives there that experiencing persecutions surely uh, tip, uh, tip us off that it's going to be at this time. We're going to experience these things at the same time we're experiencing persecutions. To everyone who sacrifices the promise to receive many times as much, Mark, Mark says a hundredfold houses, jobs, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children. Those promises are satisfied in the here and now. In the here and now. Sound impossible? Take a look around. Look at one another. Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. You didn't leave behind your family. They're right here. Family is right here. You you have siblings that have rejected you because of the testimony of your faith. You have far more brothers and sisters right here who are willing to embrace you for it. I think of the men here, some of them who I'm closer to than even my brother, Jerry Robertson. And I like that, that brother that you all met. Not a believer from what we can tell yet. He's open to hearing about Christ. But the brothers and the sisters 
that we have, I find as I look around, I see, I see many who are my mothers. So Jesus promises I'll be rewarded a hundredfold. Folks, I'm going to take that literally. I'm expect, i got five siblings. I'm expecting this church to be 500 people real soon. I'm going to have a hundred mothers. How much better can it get, right? You see, I haven't lost anything. I, I've, I've only gained, in fact, you can't lose in the kingdom. Speaking of mothers, there's Faye just walked in right there. She's been a mother to all of us. Wonderful woman. We don't probably have to take the statement as being entirely literal. A hundred homes would be a lot to mow. Um, yet after entering Christ's kingdom, just as Luke eighteen twenty eight assures, I've already gained hundreds of times whatever it was that I might have given up. It's all right here. It's all right here. What Jesus seems to figuratively suggest is that your experience in his, in his current spiritual kingdom, the kingdom that is right now, the, the church, it should far exceed that of your pre-conversion life. Experience should be better now than it was then. Anything that you give up will be more than replenished during this lifetime under his spiritual kingdom reign. I've got a couple good timely quotes here from Calvin. Bring a professional in here. This is what he says about this, this passage we're looking at. The substance of it is this. Those who shall willingly lose all for the sake of Christ will be more happy even in this life than if they had retained the full possession of them, but the chief reward is laid up for them in heaven. He continues, of speaking of things we passed up, he continues saying, Yet God gladdens His people, so that the small portion of good which they enjoy is more highly valued by them and far sweeter than if out of Christ they had enjoyed, uh, outside of Christ they would have enjoyed an unlimited abundance of good things. In this sense, says Calvin, I interpret the expression used by Mark with persecutions as if Christ had said, though persecutions always await the godly in this world, and though the cross, as it were, is attached to their back, speaking of the disciples' back, yet so sweet is the seasoning of the grace of God which gladdens them that their condition is more desirable than the luxury of kings. That's how good it is. We think of back in the day, uh, that, that the reformers lived, or Augustine, fourth century A.D. and others, and we just think it must have just been ho so horrible. No, it wasn't. They had Christ just like we have them. They were happy and content with Christ. When properly considered, we have so much more now than we did. We don't have near as fancy of a home, perhaps, as we did before coming to Christ. The place we live now might not be near as big, but a divine sense of contentedness makes us feel comparatively rich. 
or pre-conversion, I think of myself even here, pre-conversion, I always had my eye over the fence looking at what my neighbor had, never satisfied that I had enough, and, and, and it left me feeling rather poor. But today, no matter what, what way you cut it, the quality of my experience in the kingdom far exceeds my experience that I had outside the kingdom, I would say, over a hundredfold. In fact, I, I'd venture to suggest that nearly everyone who has forsaken careers or homes or wealth for the sake of the kingdom of God would testify in the exact same way. That doesn't always make decisions easy. But what we have now is so much more than what we did. Though I realize, as does Calvin, that the, the passage supplies application for, to comfort every Christian. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's reassuring them before he goes to the cross. I also believe this passage is intended, uh, I, I think it applies to all of us. Let me get that straight first. Every Christian who has sacrificed anything on behalf of the kingdom of God. But I have to believe this passage is intended to provide special application for those who have been called to forsake uh, what they have in their lives, their careers, um, their homes, for the sake of gospel ministry. Now, we don't often encounter passages that discuss God's unique call to full-time missions or the full-time pastorate. Um, but we do know that this was not only for the original 12 apostles. This applies broader to them. There are many who are called to preach the gospel. Many who are called to go out into the world. And just as 1 Corinthians 9.14 describes, the Lord directed them to earn their living by, by the work that they make in the gospel. They're to be sent out and earn their living in that way. In Mark 10.29, Jesus says, they're doing it for my sake and for the gospel's sake. So, So if there's anyone listening out there, anyone with an earshot, suspicious that they're sensing some sort of call, I'd like to assure you of one thing. Well, the call to being a missionary... Or the call to being a, a pastor, I want to assure you one thing. It ain't a bad gig. It ain't a bad gig. I say that because many people with hesitation, but my, myself, for instance, I was raised in a denomination that really looked kind of down upon being called into the ministry. I don't know if any of you originate. From, from that as well. It kind of broadly suggested that, that pastoring is for strange people. You know, they're socially awkward and really don't get along well with people. Um, they, they can probably go into the ministry. They're, they're the type of people who want to put real life on hold. You know, well, they go and study for years and they learn through understudy or through getting a degree, preferably both. Um, they're they're going to put off life these type of people that growing up would hear that say, well, they should expect meager salaries, never expect to drive a late model car. By the way, they should never retire. And people get these kinds of things in their head, you know. The church will probably own the parsonage, and if you go into ministry, you'll probably never own your own home. Uh, there are many people who won't want to marry you. Any young men out there say, I couldn't go into the pastor because I want to get married. 
tell you, honestly, I've rarely seen it as a problem. That Pastor Weiler and many other young pastors, I was fortunately, of course, that's just my personal name. Fortunately, I was married before I got into it. But uh, fortunately, I found anyone who put up with me. <laughs> but these things get into our heads. It's like, look at everything I'm going to have to give up if I go into the ministry. Folks, that is not at all what Jesus is teaching us here. You're going to gain in whatever level you do ministry, in ministry. Folks, um, if you're called, you surely are going to have to give something up. There's no doubt about that. In fact, you, you, you must be willing and anxious to sacrifice or, or, or else you're not being called if you're not anxious to give up. And if possible... You probably have to put some, some things in your life on hold, at least for a while. You can't be a lover of money. That was the problem with the rich, young ruler. Instead, you have to love what Jesus loved, his people, his church, and his kingdom. And what I just say here in closing it might cause some premillennialists to, to cringe. We who are premillennialists, you know, we look forward to, the, to the, the physical manifestation of Christ when he returns, sitting on his glorious throne and such. We're premillennial. But this might make some cringe a little bit, but I'm going to say it. It shouldn't make them cringe. Nevertheless, it's true, scripturally and, and otherwise. God's kingdom currently extends to earth. And, and today that includes both a spiritual and a physical kingdom. There is a physical kingdom of God on earth right now. Christ is not physically present. We as his subjects are. We're here. In the human sense, we're, we're a very physical manifestation of God's kingdom on earth. You know, far too often Christians, we, we've divorced the spiritual experience from our physical existence. Like they're two different things that that don't associate with one another. But Christians can't separate a human being in that way. We, We are both body and spirit. Some say mind, body, and spirit. We exist, we worship, we serve in a physical realm. This is all physical. You don't believe me, just reach off across someone and slap them. We live in a very physical realm with very tangible needs. This is his kingdom. It's not just a, an, an abstract metaphysical type experience being a Christian. The church of Christ, the, the people of God, are, are very, a very physical manifestation of God's kingdom on earth. And Christians who, who love Jesus... They love his kingdom. They love his kingdom. They sacrifice for his kingdom. My experience, it isn't governing governing over all experiences, but I think it aligns with our passage. The more I put in, the more I get out. No way around it. The more I put in, the more I get out. The reason I believe Jesus says a hundredfold or or in other passages also includes that many times as much is because he is intending very simply to imply a ratio. 
you're going to get out of it what you put in. Whether you're called a pastor, whether you serve as a layman or a missionary or volunteer in any given sense, the kingdom of God, your dividends in this life are going to be somewhat proportional to that which you have invested from the outset. It's going to be a sacrifice. It's going to be a sacrifice. You know, sometimes we find ourselves saying this, probably everyone in here has said this at one time or another. You know, I don't feel like I'm getting much out of this. The question is, are you putting anything into it? That's the right question. What are you putting, how much initial investment have I put in? Because Christ has promised those dividends. He's promised it. And I notice the more I put in, the dividends in the kingdom increase. I grow closer to the people here. We end up having more friends and more relationships and more opportunities over time and investment. Um, that's just what Jesus said would happen. That's exactly what Jesus would happen. And, and, and I've found that I don't have to wait for him to come to enjoy it. It's already here. The kingdom of God is in our midst. At times, I've received, this is most oxymoronic, contrary to what you would think. But when I put, uh, when I put in without expecting anything, when I, when I put in without expecting anything out of it, when I stay invested in it and when my mind is engaged in it, my, my heart is lifted. And at the end of the day, when my time is spent, that's when the contentment really sets in. Investing in the kingdom. It's a sense of contentment. It seems many people invest their entire lives in a perpetual search for riches. Christ said, Seek my kingdom first, and all of these things will be added to you. Let's pray.